my compensation was uh, paid in uh, on the hoof cattle, and I I used that, uh, sold some of that, bought some more, and uh, so I, I had to get out of the cattle business age eighteen when I uh, I went off to college. But when I look back on it, that was probably my uh, my most successful enterprise that uh, <laughs> that I've had throughout my life. Welcome to the Fueling Deals Podcast, the podcast that teaches how to accelerate your business growth through all types of deals. It's time to fuel up, so buckle in with your host, Corey Kupfer. There are only two ways to grow your business, organically through sales, marketing, and providing great products and services, and inorganically through deals. Too many companies focus only on the first way, organic growth. Welcome to the podcast in which we help accelerate your business growth inorganically. My guests are a huge variety of deal makers and experts on all types of deals who have personal experience that can help you grow get clear, learn best practices, and avoid mistakes. We discuss everything from large, complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My guest today on the podcast is Phil Buchanan. Phil serves as executive chairman of the board for Cannon Financial Institute. Phil is one of the most highly sought wealth management experts in America. He has worked with major financial services firms in North America and their subsidiaries abroad as a speaker, trainer, consultant, and coach. Phil, I'm excited to have you on the podcast. Corey, welcome. Uh, it's exciting to be here. I appreciate the, uh, the opportunity to be a part of it. So, Phil, you know, you're, you're now uh, executive chairman of the board of a very significant uh, financial uh, services industry firm. Uh, but I want to take you back before we talk about that and ask, uh, what did you want to be when you were a little kid? Because my, my guess is running a um, uh, financial services firm was probably not in the picture at that point, but correct me if I'm wrong. No, you're uh, you're spot on with uh, with your analysis. I don't know that uh, there are very many uh, very many youngsters that uh, looked up at their mom or dad at age six and said, uh, "I want to be in wealth management" or "I want to be a, a consultant" or uh, or the like. Uh, it's it's interesting when I was uh, when I was a young kid, I was uh, I was fascinated with uh, with airplanes and aircraft, and uh, I thought I uh, thought I might be a pilot in the navy. I thought I might uh, fly jets for Delta. Uh, that didn't uh, come about, and it's probably good both for the Navy and the traveling public that I didn't. Uh, <laughs> but uh, this is uh, this is this has certainly become my uh, over the years not just uh, become my passion, but uh, something that uh, that I take tremendous uh, intellectual and uh, and emotional satisfaction in. It's a, it's a fun business to be part of. Oh, that's great. So uh, before we uh, get to the present, one other question about the past. So what, what was your first real business, however you describe that? Actually, my, my first real business, I guess, was uh, was around age 13 or 14. My, uh, my dad and his brother um, had what I will describe as a gentleman farm. Uh, they raised cattle as a, as a sidebar deal. My, uh, my dad was a, a judge. My, uh, uncle was the comptroller of a, uh, of a furniture company, but they, uh, they had this farm and, uh, they were constantly struggling to find, uh, find laborers. And, uh, so I told him, I said, you know, I, I'd, I'd love to love to work out there, but I don't want you to pay me in cash. Uh, what I'd like to uh, have the opportunity to do is uh, is to have a, a piece of uh, piece of the action. I'd like to uh, like to own some of the some of the cattle, and uh, I actually. Uh, uh, my compensation was uh, paid in uh, on the hoof cattle, and I I used that, uh, sold some of that, bought some more, and uh, so I, I had to get out of the cattle business age eighteen when I uh, I went off to college. But when I look back on it, that was probably my uh, my most successful enterprise that uh, <laughs> that I've had throughout my life. Uh, beef prices spiked during that period of time, and I probably uh, in hindsight would have been financially better off if I'd stuck with that. Oh, that's uh, that's funny. I, I love that story. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because, you know, we've uh, I talked to some other people about uh, bartering, you know, services for equity deals, uh, you know, that they do now. And uh, but, you you know, you did a deal at that young age to uh, bought a services for cattle. <laughs> that, 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 uh, and again, uh, some of those lessons we learned very early in life uh, should follow us the rest of our lives. Maybe uh, maybe that's why I'm involved in some of the things I'm today. All right, so let's let's talk about that a little bit. You know, tell us about Cannon Financial Institute, what it does, and you know, and, and what you're involved in now. 
Well, historically, uh, Canon has been an educational and consulting firm focused uh, exclusively on the wealth management business. We uh, we stick pretty close to those roots today. Uh, if you are in the trust business, if you're in the asset management business, the uh, the, the higher end uh, insurance business, uh, be it whether you're uh, going for licensure or you're looking to be more effective with regard to uh, the way that you uh, you apply your trade. Uh, uh, we design educational programs. We do consulting work with firms and with practices to help them uh, accelerate uh, their learning curve, but also the growth rate of their practices and their firms. And uh, and talk to us just a little bit about you know who you know, in the wealth man- management industry. Those of us in that industry, and as you know, I do a lot of work in that industry. You don't know that there are a variety of platforms out there. Uh, everything from the wirehouses to the uh, independent broker dealers to the uh, totally independent RIA space, and you know, and, and various others. Uh, so, you know, who, who do you work with uh, along those uh, spectrums? So let's uh, let's go back to the initial uh, premise of Canon. It started as a trust educational uh, program back in, in the early 1960s. And between, uh, say, 1961 and the late uh, 1980s, early part of the 90s, focused exclusively in that space. Um, I joined the firm on a full-time basis in the early 90s, and at one of our first meetings, we made a determination that we were going to become agnostic as to channel. Uh, we were we were going to move away from an ex- express concentration in trust and focus instead on the high-end uh, advisor, uh, whether he or she came from the trust, the broker deal, the independent space, the RIA space, the insurance space, et cetera. Uh, so today, we're, we're fortunate enough to count uh, relationships with brokerage firms like the Morgan Stanley's and the Merrill Lynch's of the world, uh, the independent uh, space, the, the LPLs and the Soteras of the world uh, into uh, more of the boutique um, RIA channel. Uh, so again, we're, we're, we're not so much concentrated as a specialist in a vertical, but more in dealing with the high-end, higher net worth client and what it takes to, uh, to create a very unique experience for those individuals. Uh, you know this, Corey, the, the, the wealth management space has become um, very commoditized in a lot of ways. Uh, I remember when I first got started in this business in the 80s, uh, you, could, you could really be distinctive and differentiated with your asset management offer, uh, the platform, your, your unique proprietary asset strategy. Uh, today, uh, that has been driven to, to very much of a commoditized uh, offer. And so today, everybody that's, uh, that, that's really uh, championing a, a differentiated product or, or differentiated experience is focused on, you know, how do we make a difference in the lives of the clients, not just sell and distribute more product. And uh, that's that's where we're spending the vast majority of our time. That's great. So let, let's talk about, you know, obviously this podcast focuses on inorganic growth and how to do deals to grow your business. So uh, let's uh, tell the Fueling Deals uh, podcast listeners uh, some of your experiences in terms of how you have fueled your business growth or helped other companies fuel their business growth through deals? Well, you know, it's interesting when uh, when you and I connected and um, had a, a wonderful initial conversation. It's uh, it, it's amazing that uh, you and I have both been in this business as long as we had, and uh, we have we have just connected. But uh, I, I decided to go back and uh, and and recount uh, the uh, the transactions I've actually been involved in, either uh, directly or indirectly. And uh, a rough guesstimate is uh, a little over thirty uh, transactions. Uh, either from the the formation of NUCOs that uh, maybe were were being spun out of a scenario, and or uh, all the way up to uh, you know Fortune 100 company transactions of um, of large uh, larger deals, and um, you know I. It, it's amazing when you look back over it, uh, whether you're doing uh, a $2 million deal or a $200 million deal or a $2 billion deal, uh, the, the basic formula uh, of, of putting these together, and I'm not talking about the mathematical formula, uh, but the basic formulas and the basic do's and don'ts, they, they don't shift a lot. Uh, they're, they're basic principles that uh, I think apply, and, and you and I chatted on, uh, on several of those when, uh, when we talk. Uh, look forward to, to walking through those. Yeah, yeah. So let's, let's definitely do that because, listen, uh, you know, 30 deals is a, is a nice sampling, uh, you know, and, uh, and I'm sure they're all different. And, uh, 
And despite the fact that I, I know you're a, a wonderfully successful uh, guy, and I'm sure uh, the far majority of those deals went really well, I'm sure you had uh, some of those that didn't went, go exactly as you planned or that you learned some things uh, from. So yeah, why, why don't we jump in and, uh, and talk about, maybe let's start, uh, you know, uh, let's stay out of the deal specific for the moment, but let's uh, go to where you were talking about where there is the, uh, these commonalities about across deals uh, where we've learned some lessons on what works and what doesn't work. So uh, let's start at that higher level and, uh, you know, give, give me your thoughts. Okay. Um, big picture, I think the most important question that a, a seller or a buyer has to ask and, and answer with great clarity is why are we going to do a deal at all? Uh, now, that that sounds kind of like a, a very basic question. You say, duh, but at, at the end of the day, I see so many firms, I see so many practitioners that want to do a deal. Uh, they're 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 rabid about the process, but they really don't have great clarity around that. Um, you know, I've heard uh, scale is is a term that gets bannered about quite a bit. I, that's a driver for a lot of buyers. We want to create scale. We want to grow at a at a faster rate, and and obviously that's a big uh, a big part of the the inorganic message there. Uh, for a for a seller, they will often say, "Well, I'm looking for an exit strategy, or I want to take some dollars off the table, or we've grown as big as we can grow with uh, the capabilities and the resources that we've got." And in order to quote unquote again scale, uh, we've got to have a uh, a partner. But you know, I think for me, it's critical to evaluate first. How does this deal potentially, because, and I say potentially because it is going to have an impact, but how is the deal going to impact the end-user clients of both practices or, or both firms? Uh, that is, that's a question that is very rarely asked, I find, in, in early analysis of doing a deal. Um, people will often look at the, the financial metrics. They'll look at the assets and the management. They'll look at the revenue. They'll think about expenses that can be reduced through redundancy, uh, et cetera. But at the end of the day, when I look back, and, and you're right, um, it, luckily we're, you know, the, the situations I've been involved in, the majority of them have, have worked out uh, in a positive manner for, for all parties involved. But you're right, there, there are always going to be some misses. And as I go back to those misses, rarely, if ever, was that question asked. How does this enhance the experience that clients are going to receive? Why will they become raving fans of the combined practice, the combined organization? Uh, so for me, starting with that question of how will this eventually impact the client? And then a very close second question is uh, a question of culture. Uh, and anytime you do a transaction uh, and and anytime you bring two parties together, whether it's a, uh, a marriage or whether it's a business deal, uh, there is going to be a, a, um, a perspective that both parties are going to come to the relationship with. And if you don't examine that culture and that potential impact on the, uh, the constituency parties, if that's not part of the early conversations, you're, you're setting yourself up for a uh, pretty harried road down the, down the path. Yeah, it's it, Phil. It's and you know we we discovered this when 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 we connected and you know you and I are so aligned on that and uh, you know a lot of people think of attorneys they just come in and document the deal but these are the kind of questions that uh, that I ask my clients and usually they come to me early in the process and it's exactly right because any of us who have done a lot of deals what we find is and listen I'm the I, I'm not going to discount the value of having a great legal agreement and making sure the business structure is right and the money flows right and. Uh, you know, and 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 uh, the governance of the joint ent- entity, if the merger or acquisition is decided upon, and you know whatever. But the point is, you can you can you can do all those. I can write the best agreement in the world. We can be clear on how the money flows, etc. But if people aren't clear about their why, if they don't have a shared vision, if the cultures don't work together, all of that's going to be meaningless. You're exactly right. And if if we break it right down to brass tacks, the worst deals that. I've ever seen, uh, and and you never know that it's a bad deal truly until after the fact, and you're you're months and even years down the line. But the very worst deals that I've ever seen in retrospect all began with poor alignment on culture and not a really good purpose behind why uh, the deal is being done, other than it 
ads assets or other than it, it had the potential to, uh, to add revenue. So the cultural issue and asking some of those questions up front, very critical. Um, after that, uh, you know, you made the, you made the comment about the legal agreement and the structures and things like that. And, and of course that is, that's always, uh, an important part, but again, I've never seen deals truly go uh, terrible on finances alone. Uh, sure, sometimes it didn't it didn't generate what you thought it was going to generate, and it, it it didn't hit quite the way you thought it was going to hit. But it wasn't just the financial uh, side of it that caused that uh, to go sour. There was usually some other uh, misalignment. Well, that's right. And listen, one of the things I always say on the legal documents is I say, listen, uh, you know, ideally, and, and I've been doing this long enough where, where, where I used to say you put them in a file cabinet <laughs> as opposed to, uh, you know, uh, saving them digitally on a computer. But what I say to people is, listen, there's really two purposes to do the legal agreements right and get the deal right. One is so that the one people think about, so if something goes wrong later on and there's a roadmap as to who has what rights and, you know, uh, hopefully you have a roadmap as to dealing with all the potential situations that can come up, even you know, a split of a business partnership or people want out or whatever it is. Um, but the second one is the process of going through uh, doing agreements right helps the parties make sure there's what us lawyers call a meeting of the minds, meaning that they've really, you know, I've seen many situations where people think they've got, they're aligned on a deal. But when you go through the documentation process, you realize there's some things they didn't think about or they didn't detail. And if you do that right, it, it really helps them get to that point where there's a true understanding, mutual understanding of the deal. And then, like I said, in the old days, I used to say, well, hopefully you're going to put that agreement in a file cabinet or nowadays, you know, save it in, in a digital file and never look at it again. Because the only time you're pulling that out agreement, if that agreement out is if there's a problem with the business uh, relationship. Very true. That is, you're exactly right. And uh, it's funny, you know, you bring up a a point right there. I was, um, I was actually in a conversation with uh, a person that's, that's undergoing a, um, a review of a, of a transaction right now. And uh, there, there are a couple of, um, uh, a couple of different uh, bidders as it were uh, for, um, uh, for the company. And so he was, he was talking about some of the terms and and things that were involved. And um, he said, so what do you think? And I said, you know, at the end of the day, I don't, I don't think the the difference in those terms actually matter as much as uh, who you're going to uh, want to be in business with and want to partner with over the next uh, 36 to 60 months. Uh, pick that and the money will work itself out. If, if people do it just based on the transaction metrics uh, and there's not that alignment, uh, they may get paid exactly what they anticipated they were going to get paid, but uh, it, it will not be a, uh, a joyous experience. Uh, I think I shared this with you when we chatted. I remember telling my dad at, at I don't know, I was 19, 20, I was going to have this great career and I was going to make all this money. And, uh, you know, at 19, you're 10 foot tall and bulletproof. And I remember him making the comment. He said, uh, he said, son, he said, my experience is do what you love and the money will follow you. But if you do something just for the money, uh, you know, you're always going to be tied to, uh, to, to that role. And he, he's, he was exactly right in that. And, uh, you know, a lot of these, uh, a lot of these deals that, uh, you hear about the rumor mill of what the structures are and, and the like, uh, it, it, it sounds wonderful uh, on its surface, uh, but if there's not a uh, uh, a tremendous amount of alignment on how the bringing together of those groups, those organizations, those practices, those firms, uh, of, of what that's going to mean to an end-user client and why that end-user client is going to become more of a raving fan and, a, and an advocate of that combined organization, uh, that's a... You know, I would I would really question the uh, uh, the thought process behind doing those types of transactions unless you just have to do a deal. Now, we we've all been parts of situations where people, for financial reasons, health reasons, and others, they they had to do a transaction. Okay, I get that, but um, we we. We are definitely in a mode right now where there are a lot of buyers uh, out there. There's a lot of money uh, looking at deals. And, um, you know, I don't, I just don't want to see our industry fall into that trap of having done the deal and then suffer through a misalignment of culture, which is going to create negative client experiences. It's going to create negative internal conflict uh, between the, the, the joined organizations, uh, which leads to, you know, attrition, client dissatisfaction, all those other types of things that we've we've all seen down the line so um uh again that that front end piece so vital so critical 
So, Phil, uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about some of the types of deals you've done and 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 what you know the strategic value of those uh, were, and and you know, and maybe if there's some of the lessons you've learned uh, along the way, uh, just so the audience can get an idea of you know because. You know, I find that a lot of people, when they think about deals, they automatically just think about mergers and acquisitions, and those are great deals and tuck-ins and that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, there are all types of deals out there. Uh, there are deals where you hire people and, you know, maybe positioned out to the marketplaces as an acquisition, but it's really a hire with some sort of incentive. There are, you know, in, in other industries outside our industry, uh, or even, you know, potentially you doing education stuff. I don't know if you've done any licensing, you know, but there are deals like that. There's strategic alliances, there's joint ventures. In the wealth management industry, there are sub-advisor relationships, there's, you know, referral relationships. You know, there's so many different types of deals that firms can do. And I think sometimes people who don't do deals have a limited view of what deals are. Well, you said something so important right there. Um, in in my way of thinking, um, a a deal, quote unquote, uh, can can take any and all of the examples that you talked about, and some of the more successful deals that that I've actually witnessed um, have been scenarios where there are, uh, if you will, small small lift outs. Um, and again, this goes back to the purpose of of why you you wish to do a deal. And so, um, I'll give you a a couple of examples where um, I've been you know directly involved in uh, in in recent months and years that uh, really turned the tide. So you're you're part of an organization and. Uh, you, you're strongly established in a certain marketplace. You've got the capacity to grow. You've got the capital to grow. And uh, you don't want to go into uh, a marketplace necessarily de novo. Uh, but what you're not looking to do is, uh, uh, is to create, uh, you know, a, a huge capital strain uh, on your entity. Uh, one of the smartest things that you can do there is to, uh, to go in and make a, uh, make a strategic hire um, to, to establish in uh, a new marketplace. So you're you're in XYZ city. Uh, you want to be in ABC city. Uh, how do you how do you go about doing that? Uh, one of the things that I would encourage people to think about, if that's that's truly an objective they've got, is usually that that first deal, that first transaction, that first hire in a new marketplace uh, needs to carry what I call a level of gravitas to it. Uh, because I've seen both sides of this. I've seen uh, firms go into a marketplace and they, they won't, they won't go in and, and take, you know, the really, really big leap. They'll go in and quietly acquire a tier two or a tier three practice or do a lift out, uh, or do a hire. And again, it's a tier two or it's a tier three and it makes almost zero splash. It doesn't, it doesn't catch anybody's attention. And when I say anybody's attention, uh, I mean the competitor marketplace, but I also mean the client marketplace because many times those tier two and tier three practices, uh, they don't have, uh, the, the, the top tier uh, quality clientele uh, that are part of it. They don't have the uh, the thriving reputation. They don't have the, the growth engine behind it. And so the the situations that I've seen there that have been more successful have been when you you do go after the more successful practices, and you may even pay a bit of a premium uh, for that first opportunity to to establish that brand, to establish that track record. Because really, what you're trying to do, my experience, uh, and in going into a new market like that is you're you're buying reputation. You're 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 establishing yourself. You're establishing your firm, but you're 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 taking the reputation of that that experienced practitioner, that experienced practice, uh, and and adding it in and folding it in under uh, under your umbrella. And that does a couple of things. Uh, number one, that gets you established in that marketplace, and hopefully with a uh, positive and accretive cash flow. But the second thing that it does is it alerts the the other potential joiners of the practice down the line that you are very serious about that marketplace that you're willing to make uh, that level of investment. And so I would, you know, just as a lesson learned is when you're when you're coming into a new marketplace, uh, come into that marketplace, be be forward leaning, um, take your time, do your diligence, and be willing to invest what's necessary to to make that type of uh, make that type of transaction. I don't know if, if you've seen something similar in, in your experience or, or maybe even something different. No, no, I, I, I absolutely think it's brilliant advice and I, and, and I a hundred percent agree with it. And, and then, you know, the interesting part is just to follow through on, uh, on uh, what you're saying, 
is those, you know, tier two firms, which may be, you know, that, you, that are not the right firms to be the initial uh, firm to give you the gravitas and establish yourself in the market. Those are great firms to then tuck in and acquire, you know, on the second, third and fourth deal, because there are a lot of quality firms out there that are doing, you know, great, great work for clients, but they don't necessarily have the reputation. They don't have the scale. They don't have the systems, uh, et cetera. And, you know, what you do is on those deals, you, you know, you, that's not your first deal, but it could be your second, third, fourth deal. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. And the other thing that you've got at that point in time is you've got an established reputation. Uh, you've, you've, you now know that marketplace. You've got the ability to separate the wheat from the chaff, as it were. And uh, you're usually, at least my own personal experience, uh, you're usually much more effective and efficient in your second and third deal uh, in a region than you are that the first deal, you know, at times can be a little noisy. Uh, sometimes it, it, it it's a little messier than the successive deals, uh, but it's it's in that that initial transaction that uh, reputation's really established. So um, I, I, I love your love your follow up thoughts right there. So that's a that's an example of a uh, a scenario that uh, that we've we've worked within. Another is uh, when there uh, there's an opportunity uh, based on a, a variety of of factors involved, and uh, for example. Uh, a lot of we were blocked in this conversation earlier uh, this week uh, with a client of ours. There are a lot of firms today that are making the strategic decision to exit certain lines of business. Uh, and I'm talking, you know, usually these are, uh, you know, well-established, very often public uh, public companies. And sometimes they've got a, um, a line of business that they're, they're not interested in continuing. Perhaps they're wanting to shop it. And there are a couple of ways to, to obviously uh, uh, pursue that. Number one is to uh, work out a transaction uh, with that organization. Uh, number two uh, is to, um, to to hire the the principals that are involved in in running that piece of business, and that's something that I have uh, I have seen some practices uh, used to establish themselves in uh, in certain unique verticals by taking advantage of uh, of people wanting to to, to exit exit a line of business. And usually, uh, again, it's uh, larger institutions that, uh, you know, through different mergers and acquisitions they've been a part of, uh, they're at a station where, you know, they're, they're wanting to, to, to be leaner. Uh, they're wanting to be more targeted, more focused, and they've got a, a unit that just doesn't fit. Uh, that can be a very unique transaction. And, and I would encourage people to, Corey, the, the, the term that I use is always take the meeting. Uh, if, if somebody says, you know, hey, could, could we have a conversation on this? I'm, I'm always going to take that meeting, even if it's not something that I think I'm going to be interested in, just the opportunity to, to learn what's happening. Uh, there have been as I think back on it, uh, probably a half a dozen or so situations where I've been involved in some of those initial conversations, recognizing that it might not be right in in one client scenario or one firm scenario, but being able to uh, put together a, a, a situation in which uh, maybe there's another another firm that could be a player or a joint venture, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, I, I think the creativity that uh, is available uh, through some of these opportunities uh, can really be accretive to uh, a lot of practices and uh, bring to them uh, perhaps business lines and revenue streams that are not directly correlated, uh, which in volatile economic environments sometimes can be a very nice thing to have uh, non-correlated revenue streams. Absolutely, and you know it's, it's interesting to me. I love the uh, use the word creativity, and I and I love that because I find that uh, sometimes business people and certainly lawyers get stuck into into structures they know. And the truth is that, it, you know, there's various types of deals and they don't even have to fall into a defined bucket. I mean, I've done some really interesting structures for people and you can create them. And, you know, and, and in many industries, you're really free to do whatever you want. I mean, uh, obviously, in the wealth management space, uh, it is a regulated area. So there are some certain, you know, things that apply that might uh, restrict certain activities. But still, even within that, there's significant creativity in the types of deals that you can do. Yeah, that 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 is very true. Um, and again, at the end of the day, I think it takes um, I think it takes people who are willing to explore options, and I, that's what creativity is all about: it's identifying options uh, and building uh, you know building a deal that is is workable for all parties involved. 
Great. Uh, you know, today, I, I, I think you've, you've probably seen this. Um, I think there's a general sense among uh, a lot of sellers that uh, their, their business or their book of business or their company uh, carries with it in their own mind a certain value that may exceed the, uh, the capability or creativity of, uh, of a lot of people to do a deal. I, uh, I gave this explanation recently. I don't know if you uh, watch HGTV, but there are two guys in there called the Property Brothers, and uh, they'll go out and they'll buy, a, uh, they'll buy a house and they'll, they'll fix it up for a, a family. And I was, I was looking at something the other day and they said, you know, to remodel the kitchen is going to be $1,200. To remodel the bath is going to be $1,000. Landscaping is going to be six. $600. And, you know, I was sitting there, I was listening to those numbers and I was like, well, you know, that sounds great. But re- in, in reality, you know, you're, if you're talking about remodeling a, a kitchen for $1,200, what you're really talking about is putting on a coat of paint. And, uh, unfortunately, a lot of times, you know, people will hear numbers or they'll hear multiples and, you know, they're, they're thinking, wow, you know, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get a check for X amount. They start calculating their, their tax on that. And now they've got this, this pile of money and, my experience is that that's very rarely reality for uh, for what happens for a lot of these people. So again, expectations and creativity, um, you've you've got to come to the table with an open mind. Yeah, absolutely. And listen, uh, you know, sometimes deal structure can bridge some of those gaps, uh, like, you know, for example, using earnouts, if they they think, hey, you know, the value is not high enough because, uh, you know, we're in a growth mode and the, and of course the buyer often doesn't want to pay for, uh, uh, future growth uh, that's not guaranteed. You know, you can use things like earnouts to get around it. But 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 sometimes, yeah, people just have a very unrealistic expectation of what uh, their practice, their firm, their company is worth, and uh, and uh, you know they got to get more realistic before you can bridge a gap and get a deal done. You know, Corey, you you mentioned a, a term that is definitely a lesson learned for me, and that term is earnouts. Um, I, I'm a big big fan of earnouts now. In full disclosure, uh, the majority of the transactions that uh, that I've been involved in uh, over over the years have uh, have been involved on the on the acquiring side, uh, the purchaser side, uh, and so in a lot of instances, purchasers do like to do like to do the the earnouts, particularly if they're uh, wanting to ensure that uh, the principals you know continue to be involved and they want to create a, a great client experience. Uh, but again, I think it is that uh, that that structure of the earnout that that keeps parties engaged and ensures that we we focus on client retention, uh, that we minimize attrition. Um, I don't know that uh, you and I haven't haven't talked about this. I don't know your your perspective as a uh, as a structuring attorney. Um, you know, is that is that always the always this terrible term? Shouldn't use that. Is that generally uh, something that you suggest to your uh, your, your acquiring clients, or um, does it just go deal to deal? Yeah, I mean, it's a little deal to deal, but frankly, you know, it's it's very often a, at least a portion of the deal. You know, there's usually some. Uh, amount of money down, there may be some amount of money paid over time and, you know, in the form of a note where it's, where it's just, you know, uh, an installment payment. Uh, but, you know, but it's, uh, I'd say in, in more often than not, there's at least a component of the deal that has, you know, has some sort of earnout uh, piece of it for the various reasons that, you know, you mentioned. No question. Um, so uh, what, what I love is, uh, you know, obviously, you know, your experience is deals mainly in the financial services, wealth management industry. I do a lot of work in that industry, but I also uh, do work in various other industries. And our listeners, uh, you know, we have a lot of listeners in the wealth management space, but we also have listeners, uh, you know, in other spaces. And what I love is everything that we've talked about, even though uh, the examples are in wealth management, they really apply to any other types of deals, certainly in, in other service businesses. You can apply them across the board. So I think there are lessons in there for people in any type of business looking to do deals. Corey, I think you're exactly right. Uh, you know, in in my experience, um, I call it the principles of uh, of relationships, uh, and principles of relationships apply to uh, to, to any transaction, whether it's the tech space, the, uh, the the pharmaceutical space, the the financial services space. A, a transaction is going to be based on the relationships between the principals involved, the buyers and the sellers. It's going to be based upon the relationships of the the, the combined uh, employees and stakeholders of the the, the new entity uh, post acquisition. Uh, it's going to be based on the relationship 
that uh, the clients of the uh, combined firm ultimately have with that that new organization or that combined organization. And so if you focus on ensuring that that transactions at least have the propensity to be accretive to all parties uh, that that people uh, will will gain from that. That's that's when the best transactions take place. Uh, you know the probably the worst transaction that uh, uh, that I've ever experienced is uh, when uh, uh, you know a, a group wanted to uh, wanted to be acquired. Uh, thought that they were going to uh, be able to get uh, greater distribution uh, of of what they were doing, uh, but really had no interest to fit within the culture uh, of the the acquiring organization. As a matter of fact, almost demanded that they uh, uh, they be left alone, but have ready access to uh, uh, all of the uh, client facing professionals of of the new organization. And uh, it was an early transaction for. Uh, for the buying uh, group, uh, and so they uh, they had yet to uh, learn some of the tougher lessons that you learn down the line. The the financial structure was a, a pretty good structure. The the legal documents were fantastic, uh, but they never got uh, they never got. The, the right alignment as to why they were doing the deal and what the expectations were of all parties post uh, transaction and uh, that deal actually had to be unwound uh, with a uh, with a sale back um, you know a few years down the line and uh, I don't know that anybody uh, was really satisfied with that one. Yeah, it's unfortunate when that happens and usually it's uh, you know it's uh, for reasons where in, in hindsight you actually realize what you, <laughs> what wasn't done up front to. Uh, uh, you know, to protect against that or, or, or determine that maybe it wasn't the right deal in the first place. So, you know, that's always interesting. Um, what, one of the things I, so, you know, uh, as I said, our discussion up until this point really, you know, applies across industries. I do want to, because you, you have such extensive experience in the wealth management space, I do want to ask a specific question on that in terms of what you see, because, you know, we have, uh, you know, it's really been a maturing and evolving space, right? A lot more uh, private equity, venture capital money coming in, funded firms, of course, you you got uh, Focus Financial going public, um, you know other firms that are you know that are potentially looking at IPO, uh, you know uh, uh, consolidation, bigger firms you know in place, aggregators, you know all these things that you didn't have in the industry uh, back when you and I started in it. Um, so I just uh, just wonder whether you have any sort of uh, you know macro views on on how the industry is evolving. Uh, you know whatever, whatever comes to mind. I mean, uh, you know I always find maturing industries uh, very interesting. And, uh, you know, there are real good things about it. And then there are some uh, some things that uh, come into question, uh, like, you know, whether uh, these funded companies can maintain deals and, and do the right deal still, you know, so that, you know, I don't want to uh, limit your thoughts. I, I'd just love to get your thoughts on the changing landscape in the wealth management industry. Well, uh, first off, it's uh, it's complex. Uh, that's. That's a term that I, I would uh, I would use right now. I mean, go through. Uh, you probably uh, described a dozen or more uh, participants in uh, transactions right now, and the lens by which each of those participants looks at a deal is is going to be different. Um, I think. Well, there 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 are several things at play. Number one. Uh, don't don't discount or undervalue the role technology is playing in the the wealth management space today. Uh, tremendous amount of of disrupt. Uh, excuse me. Dis, uh, <laughs> I was about to say uh, disruptive, and then I, I got dis, uh, disruptive came out, and I was <laughs> like, well, uh, either of those terms might be applicable depending upon the situation. Right. Right. Uh, but uh, uh, no, uh, technology is is really enhancing uh, potentially the ability of the wealth management industry from uh, both efficiency standpoint and a profitability standpoint. Um, and I think that's that's where a lot of the players see the opportunity today. Uh, and I think that's why there's a lot of money chasing uh, chasing deals, uh, particularly with some of the private equity scenarios that you you talked about. It's creating something kind of unique, though, and, and you know this very well, having having done a number of deals that you've done. Uh, most of these uh, private equity organizations, the funds that they put together, uh, kind of their their whole whole business thesis is, you know, they're going to have a seven to seven to ten year turn uh, on uh, on that particular fund. 
uh, or or that that investment. And uh, sometimes the the window is a a bit shorter than that. Uh, so they're they're looking for a pop. They're looking for uh, you know increased growth, and so they're they're placing uh, a lot of emphasis, a lot of pressure on that. One of the things that I've always struggled with with the with the wealth management space, particularly some of the larger publicly traded organizations, is the the inability of some of these firms to look beyond the quarterly earnings calls that their CEOs have to do with the analysts because of the impact that that call is going to have ultimately on the share price of the organization. And you know, the tighter the window, uh, the less creative sometimes uh, organizations can be, the less patient organizations can be. And if there's one term that I've heard time and time again from many of the private equity people is we're very patient money. We're very patient money. Um, well, they're patient money until, you know, we're getting close to close to the time that they're going to need to do a transaction. So it, you're right. Uh, it, it does bring a certain level of complexity to the uh, to the table with regard to how many of these deals are getting put together, uh, how they're getting funded and what the, the time horizon for the next step or next evolution in some of those practices and firms are going to be. Um, you know, we're, I mentioned this earlier, we're, we're at a time where the value proposition of uh, a pure asset management play has, has been diminished from what it was when you and I first got in this business. Uh, today, you know, you've driven the, the value of asset management somewhere down to the 20 to 30 basis points range, whereas when you and I first got started in this business, it was 100 basis points plus. And so, you know, today, these firms, uh, they've got greater competition. Uh, they, you've got technologies input. The value proposition has been disrupted somewhat. Uh, you've got different uh, you got different clients that are coming on down the line who have very different expectations about what it's you know what it means to deal with a financial advisor. Uh, my uh, you know my parents had an advisor and they would they would meet with that advisor four times a year and they would have this you know this big summary year end meeting and it usually involved a meal etc. Uh, and I look at uh, I look at my my 22 year old who's about to graduate college and you know get started in her career uh, you know. Not that she's got, you know, a lot of money or is going to have high incomes and things like that, but she's going to have a, a, a tremendously different expectation because she was raised in uh, the day and age of technology and Skype and FaceTime and the ability to, to log on at all hours of the day and interact and use uh, text messaging and emails to, to ask questions. She, she doesn't want to go and sit down and have four meetings a year and a big due diligence review. Uh, you know, she wants to be advised and counsel on her terms, uh, not the terms of the firm. So you, you've got a lot of complexity that is, is shaking up the industry right now. And uh, I don't know that there is a, uh, that there is a pat answer of, where this thing ultimately shakes out. Um, I've been tasked with giving a speech in, uh, in early March entitled Wealth Management 2030. Uh, and it, the, the, the premise of the, of the talk supposedly is what the wealth management industry could look like in the year 2030. So when I was asked to do this, it was, uh, it, it was October of, uh, of this past year. And uh, I, I got off the phone with the person that asked me to, to give this talk. And I said, okay. So I grabbed my iPhone and uh, I was riding in the back of an Uber uh, at this point in time on the way to the airport. I grabbed my iPhone and I, I, I Googled uh, the year uh, 2006, which was 12 years prior to the time that I was being asked to give this talk about what the industry could look like 12 years following. And uh, so then I, I, uh, I put innovations since 2006. And I sat there and I started chuckling, Corey, because I was using an iPhone that was not introduced until 2007 to research this issue while sitting in the back of an Uber car, which didn't come along to 2009 and 2010. And, and I was being asked to, to, to think about what our industry could look like 12 years in the future while you know, taking advantage of all the changes that have taken place in just the past 12 years. So that's where that creativity and open mind is really going to be paramount. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of firms that will swear that they've got the, 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 the lens and the crystal ball as to where that will be. And I think we've got to, uh, you know, as, as practitioners and business owners and strategists and, and partners to the industry, I think we've got to be very, very open-minded and pretty nimble 
uh, as as we shift through these uh, these coming months and years. Well, no, no question about it. I always say that when whenever there's an evolution, whether it's technology, whether it's cultural, whether it's uh, you know w- whatever it is, that there are you know companies that are on the cutting edge of it. There are companies that come along in you know in time, and then there are companies that that don't. And and we have many examples, you know, inside but also outside of this uh, of the uh, wealth management industry. Where you know major major companies just didn't didn't respond in time, and and you know they're no longer around. I mean, you know Sears is on the verge of bankruptcy. You know Blockbuster is a million examples, right? So uh, yeah, I think I think that's that's right on. You know, in in, in your thinking, I mean the ability to uh, to be nimble, uh, you know, because nobody has a crystal ball, but at the same time you got to be up on the trends and you got to be able to uh, you know uh, adjust uh, and 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 understand where the market and your clients are taking you. Yeah, and it, not only that, but to be be somewhat active and somewhat invested in uh, continually growing your your knowledge curve and participation in in that future innovation. You know, I think about uh, I think about the taxicab industry, and I think about the hotel industry. Uh, when the taxicab industry uh, should have reacted by probably trying to acquire Uber or Lyft, they instead went to regulators to try to uh, you know. Know, to quell that uh, that competitive threat, and uh, consumers voted with their well, they didn't vote with their feet. They voted nor, nor their pocketbooks. They voted with their iPhones and Androids. They uh, they they just uh, they, they, they voted know, with they, their thumbs. They, they went with they, them. They voted that's, with their thumbs. Exactly right. And, and you know the same. The same, the exact same thing, uh, you know, has happened in the uh, in the in the overnight business. You know, if you uh, if you want to go to Atlanta, Georgia, to the Super Bowl in a couple of weeks, the hotels were sold out. But you can go on Airbnb, you can go on uh, VRBO, and you know, you can you can run a room, you can run a house, and uh, there'll there'll be more people in uh, in in rented homes and rented rooms in homes in Atlanta uh, during the Super Bowl than will probably be in the hotels because again, the hotels had an opportunity to make that acquisition, but instead. They went a different direction. And if I could encourage our industry to do one thing is to ensure that they've got um, they've got principles of the firms and the organizations they're a part of that are part of these think tanks that are part of conversations like this, where they're actively involved in examining, you know, how can we create a better environment for clients, not just how can we keep the hundred basis points or whatever the revenue stream is in the firm today, how we can keep that intact. Because, you know, the innovators and the disruptors are the ones that, that, that took the Sears and they, they, they took the blockbusters and they took the taxi cab industries and, uh, you know, they, 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 totally, they, they totally blew them away. And I think the same thing has the possibility to happen in our industry. Um, it, so we've, gotta, we've all got to be innovators. This has been great, Phil. Before I ask you my final question, I, I'm sure that my Fueling Deals podcast listeners have gotten a huge amount of value from you on this, uh, on this show. Uh, and, uh, so I want to make sure they know, uh, where to find out more about you, where to reach you and also about your phenomenal podcast. Oh, well, sure. And thank you. And, uh, look forward to having you as, uh, as a guest on as well. Um, I'm involved actually in, uh, in three podcasts, um, a weekly podcast called Monday Morning Mojo. Uh, it is, uh, it's geared for, uh, uh, kind of a kickstart to the week for, uh, people that are client facing professionals. I do a leadership podcast uh, entitled Cannon Curve. And, uh, as a response to listeners to both of those podcasts, uh, who write in with questions, comments, et cetera, uh, we, uh, we entertain their questions and sometimes have those uh, those listeners uh, who come with their questions join us live on a monthly podcast called First Friday Feedback. Uh, if you're interested in connecting uh, with us, uh, our website is uh, canon, C-A-N-N-O-N, financial.com. Uh, and of course, I'm on uh, Twitter and on LinkedIn and would uh, would love to be engaged with uh, uh, with any of your listeners. Uh, but again, look, uh, it's, it, it's been a pleasure to be a part of this, and I look forward to uh, uh, having you uh, on uh, the Cannon Curve very soon. Well, I look forward to that as well, and, and listeners will have all of uh, Phil's contact information in the show notes as well if you, if you didn't catch it now, so you can look there. Uh, so, Phil, my final quest, question that I always ask on the podcast is, uh, you know, I, I'm a, authenticity is something that uh, I believe in. I'm a super, it's very important to me, and, and it's not just about, uh, to me, authenticity is something beyond just ethics and uh, uh, you know, and that kind of stuff. But it's really this conversation of uh, making sure you run your life and your business and, and the deals you do and the people you work with uh, based upon uh, something that aligns with your inner truth, with your values. And, you know, we we alluded a little bit on this when we started talking about the why at the beginning of the, you know, uh, 
at the of the podcast. So I, I I'd be curious. Uh, you know, what do you do? Uh, to make sure that your uh, decisions you make in business and also the way you advise others is, uh, is you know, is coming from a place of authenticity? Well, there, there, there are two things that, that come to mind uh, in, in that question, the, the, the comment on authenticity. Um, a good, good friend of mine uh, by the name of Kyle McDonald uh, gave me a term several years ago that has, has always struck a with me, and the term that uh, or that he gave was humble confidence, uh, and I think that's a that, that's an important characteristic or trait that uh, that I, I look for in people uh, that that I try to try to portray and 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 live a life with um, humility, being of service to others, uh, but at the same time a, a confidence level in your own skills and abilities and that of your organization to make a difference in the lives of others. Uh, so, you know, to, to, to focus on that issue of authenticity and to, to stay true to, uh, to course and division, uh, you know, I'm a big believer in what Jim Rome said. You're a, uh, an amalgamation of the five people you spend the most time with. Be careful who you spend time with. Uh, I, I, I've really taken that to heart over the years. So I look back on, on certain periods of my life where, uh, maybe I made, uh, 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 a deal or a decision. I got influenced by uh, by something. It usually was, you know, not one of those top five people, and I was usually uh, uh, maybe influenced too much by, uh, uh, you know, something that that maybe I should have been influenced by. Uh, but at the end of the day, I go back to to what I said earlier. Uh, how is this going to going to impact all of the stakeholders? Not just how's it going to be a good deal for Phil or for Canon or for you know whatever company I'm involved in, but how does this impact the people? And if it if it's in a positive way, then you know we're 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 acting in the right way. Uh, the the actors are involved. You know they're gonna they're gonna do the right thing. If it's done purely to to exploit an opportunity, and there's you know there's 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 anguish or there's downside to to somebody being involved. The money might work, but uh, at the end of the day, you're going to have uh, you're going to have a lot worse trouble. Uh, last night, um, Brian Kemp, uh, who has uh, been recently sworn in as the new governor of the state of Georgia, uh, he told a group of his constituents, he said, uh, "You know, we're going to work hard to uh, uh, to make you proud. Uh, we'll do that in the in the light of day, and uh, we'll do that when nobody's watching." And I think that's one of the most important things of authenticity. Uh, It's what you do when people aren't watching. Uh, And uh, if you, if you constantly use that as a reminder for uh, how you evaluate what you're doing in business, I I think you usually come out. Okay. That's fantastic. Phil, I want to, I want to thank you again for being on the show. It's been such a pleasure having you. Corey, it's been mine as well. Thank you. And thank you fueling deals listeners for tuning in. Remember there's only one difference between companies that grow inorganically and those that don't. And it's unrelated to size, amount of capital, or any other factor, other than that the owners and executives of companies that do deals make a decision to do deals, and then they take action. It's time to refuel. So until next week, Corey Kupfer signing out. Thank you again for tuning in. Be sure to leave Fueling Deals a rating and review on iTunes and Google. Check out all our episodes at fuelingdeals.com to find out more resources to accelerate your business growth. 